Hi, I'm Bob Garlick, your host. Welcome to Season 3 of the Business Book Talk podcast. On each show, we will discover another great book that can help you improve yourself and your business. So, I invite you to sit back and enjoy this week's author and find out what makes this book a great read. Hey everybody, Bob again. I have Rose Fass's book, The Chocolate Conversation, Lead Bittersweet Change, Transform Your Business. And I know this is going to be a delicious interview, but before we get into it, Rose, what have you been doing recently? Uh, interestingly enough, aside from the client work, just got back from a food for thought conference in Greenville, South Carolina, uh, which was the first sort of public uh, talk on the book. And I had the great privilege of being with a number of wonderful, young, innovative people who were really making a difference in the world around social change. Um, and it was very interesting to see the chocolate conversation um, weave through uh, a lot of social change that's going on in the world of business, both in not-for-profit and profit. So uh, that's my most recent experience, and I'm just back from that. Wow. Now, I have to ask you, the chocolate conversation, the use of chocolate as a metaphor, you must love chocolate. I do. I absolutely love chocolate. Um, And as you know, the inspiration for the book, for those who have read it, and I don't know if you've got an opportunity to skim it, um, it was a death by chocolate party that I had attended uh, after college. And uh, BYOC, bring your own chocolate. Um, And I kind of went there thinking I was going to be among all of the people in the world that would be just like me. Um, and we all loved chocolate, so that was very interesting. Uh, and when I got there, uh, I think that was mostly uh, the inspiration for the book was I, I got there and I realized how different people were and uh, very much different tastes, um, completely, completely different views on chocolate. And I probably met more chocolate snobs Uh, than I had ever met at any other kind of party I'd ever been to. It was the antithesis of what I had, uh, you know, expected. And uh, I came there with my killer chocolate cake and thought I was going to be the hit of the party. And it was interesting. Lots of different uh, amazing chocolate concoctions, ones I probably couldn't even pronounce, Bob. Uh, But you really do see that people's interpretations of what they uh, think is a common, uh, something they have in common or a common worldview is very, it's very unique. So that was my first, uh, inspiration about chocolate and chocolate conversations. Yeah. I call that the nerd factor. When you go into a conversation, say, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to knock everybody away. And then you realize that there are people that are way too obsessive about a particular subject matter. Yeah. Um, why did you decide to write this book? You know, after years of being in a corporate job and in a corporate executive role, and then ultimately coming into my own business and spending time with people who were desperately trying to move change through an organization, 
CEOs who really felt like they needed to reinvent their businesses, uh, you know, leadership teams that were trying to transform the business model and get new strategies out there. I really felt every time I was in these conversations that the biggest issue they were having was that what they were saying and what they were trying to get across just wasn't being interpreted in the way they had hoped. And they would always end up with these unintended consequences and the big deal, you know, with uh, they don't get it. Um, And you hear it all the time in, in companies and in business today. They just don't get it. And what it really is, is somehow we're not putting it across in a way they can get it. So for me, that's what, um, why I felt so strongly about ultimately getting this down on paper and trying to help people see that big change and transformation can't just happen by putting together a strategy, changing a business model, buying another company, um, putting things on laminated cards and cascading them through an organization, sending out, you know, organization-wide emails, that there really needed to be a deeper understanding of how to have these conversations and how to get people engaged at a level where everybody was on the same page. With that being said, because it is so true, I go nuts all week long trying to communicate with people. Um, what's the best way to, to, to attack this book? Sh- is it a book that I can jump around in or should I kind of read the first part and then jump around or should I read cover to cover? That's a, that's a good point. Um, I definitely think the intro and the death by chocolate party and the first part of the book is, is pretty important to kind of get the, the foundation for the idea and the thought. Then I think you can jump around. Then I think you absolutely can jump around. And depending on what's of interest to you, it's like, you know, only you can do you. Somebody's sitting there saying, I want to do me. Who is me? <laughs> How do I do me? Uh, that might be important to them. Uh, another chapter in the book is addicted to relevance. Uh, and people may want to understand what is what does she mean by that, you know? So I think once you get through the intro and the death by chocolate party and you kind of understand what a chocolate conversation is, then you can kind of hop around and do what you think is important for you. Mm. Now you have these wonderful illustrations. They're just fantastic. they pop up every now and again. Um, My question is, are illustrations or visualizations of an idea critical to best, best practice in best practices in communication? Yeah. So it's so interesting when you hear leaders say, Um, I want you to see yourself in the picture or they talk about vision. And when you think about vision, you think about eyes, you think about something visual and yet there's so much text and copy and very little image or imagery. And so, yeah, I think seeing yourself in the picture, people who, this is a very visual world right now, particularly the generation of people that have grown up in technology and they're very much visual. And I think we have to have a visual literacy that we didn't have before. So uh, I took the time to have our graphic artist, you know, just kind of interpret each chapter visually 
without even getting into it with him. I just let him read the chapters and do his own visual interpretation. And I thought for those people who want to just get a summary of the book, it was a great way to do a summary and to do it visually. Yeah, and, and you know, it's interesting because you, you uh, I'm jumped to chapter seven because it's it's got quite a bit of text in it, but it does have the visuals. And just skimming through that, it really said, wow, you know what? I totally didn't get that. I better go back into that chapter and really figure out what it's all about. So it's a great way to lead people into the book for sure. Yeah, I didn't, you know, that's a good point you're making because I, that was a dense chapter, particularly when we're t- talking about message discipline. And then um, it was interesting how very succinct the visual was. I have to ask you, you're writing this book, you're gathering all this information and knowledge and and, and, and putting it into to a, a book form. What was your aha moment? When, when did something, a core belief or, or, or technique in the book crystallize for you say, wow, now I really get that? Um, I think as I started to go through the, the whole piece on the great American chocolate conversation, I hadn't planned on it. I hadn't planned on using that as a illustrative point. And I got thinking about if people look at this book at face value and just say, oh, yeah, 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 chocolate conversations, like after the death by chocolate party and that whole thing around um, sitting in the corporate meeting and realizing we were having a chocolate conversation. But it seems so raw, so very real, and so very poignant to draw attention to what's going on, on the, uh, in the public forum in government today and, and the kind of way in which people are interacting with our government and what they're hearing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think hearing. that for me was the aha moment was when I could talk about the great American chocolate conversation. Because I think for everyone, including me, that's very real and that's very personal. And we're all experiencing it. And it keeps going on. I mean, we could talk about it in the form of gun control right now. Um, what's going on economically in the world. Uh, just, you know, so much of what has been, you know, taking place among our world leaders in terms of conversation. Talk about a clash of worldviews, right, Bob? I mean, North Korea, um, you know, all the stuff that we're engaged in, I just felt that was sort of my big aha moment that that would definitely uh, uh, impact everyone and everyone could relate. Well, you know, that, that, and I think that's a key word relating. Um, when you have a conversation with somebody, you interpret what they're saying based on your worldviews and your understanding of the subject matter. And because of that, you tend to, your ears tend to distort what you're actually hearing and become, uh, you can hear something that you think is very biased, but is actually not biased at all. Um, do you feel that because we are inundated with information, a lot of it uh, not very fact-checked uh, today in the internet world with social media and people just blasting off this, that, and the other thing all the time, that we're becoming desensitized to uh, information? I think people are desensitized to information that comes to them in the form of data. Um, I think people are desensitized to information that comes in the form of just blasting it out there. 
But anything that touches us emotionally, I don't think it can be desensitized from it. I think that when you read something that relates to you and relates to the way you're experiencing the world, however, or not experiencing the world, it's in opposition to the way you experience it. and It causes your hackles to rise. I think that's when we don't desensitize. And that's what this book is about. This book is about conversation, not monologue, uh, not, you know, stuff on paper, not PowerPoint where you put your laptop on a slide. It's really about, am I making that powerful point? Am I really communicating in a way that someone on the opposite side of me is either agreeing or disagreeing? And you want one or the other. You don't want indifference. You know, I, I find when I'm doing PowerPoint presentations with people, I really try and get interactivity happen where I throw out questions all the time. I, you know, I make rules up like everybody has to ask a question and really, really dumb questions are preferred. Um, and if you ask an in really good, intelligent question, I might not count that as a good question. So you have to come up with at least one bad question. Uh, and just to break down the barrier that I'm a speaker and you guys are the audience. No, we're, we're having a conversation and I'm just yes. trying to drive thought and understanding for this particular subject. Um, as a leader or, you know, a leader that's reading a book like this, what should they be looking for? I mean, what type of headspace do you can't really change unless you want to change? And is that a fundamental problem with communication these days is people aren't willing to listen? So I think people are willing to listen, but I don't necessarily think we all know how. Um, and I would rather answer that from some of the direct feedback I've been getting. Okay, perfect. Um, I had a gentleman that I've known for a very, very long time that's a CEO of a mid-volume company. And we really know each other socially more than we know each other uh, through business. And I'm very, very friendly with his wife. And interestingly enough, he read the book and he wrote me this note and said, I'm just blown away by this. I am old. I've been doing this for a long time. I've been the CEO of this family business for uh, over 30 years. And I could not believe how poignant this was for me. I realize I have a worldview that I see the world a certain way and the people who work deep in my company don't necessarily see it the same way I do. And I never thought of it as people have different standards for how they interpret things. And he said, this has really helped me. And it's going to change the way I live out the rest of my years in this role. And I've been hearing that in different ways, Bob, from various different people. And it, it's been a it's been very gratifying for me that this book doesn't say, Bob, you have to change. This book just gives you enough provocation to examine where you are, what you're doing, and gives you the opportunity to look at that very quietly in the privacy of your own space and say, hmm, what would I do differently? Another person picked up the phone and said, I changed my whole campaign based on reading this book. Um, and I'm hearing that a lot because what I didn't want to do was lecture people. And I also didn't want to do a, a how-to book. You know, go out and do this, 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 and this. 
I wanted to put it out there as kind of a, uh, a buffet, if you will, and, and have people sample things that would work for them and see themselves in some of the stories. You know, anybody can relate to the IBM story, which is, may I have your playbook, please? Uh, how many times have we looked at somebody else's way of doing things, whether it's Steve Jobs or we admire these people, right? And we say, oh, I want to be just like them. And, and you can't be just like them. And you got to figure out what the just like them work, how much of that works for you and what doesn't and what part of you needs to be in that. So um, I think that's what I really wanted to accomplish in the book was just to let people see themselves in this picture and figure it out mm, where they stand and where yeah, or what you want to do differently. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe validate some of the things you are doing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, let's talk a little bit about message discipline. Um, in, cause that, that's one of the, the, the chapters. Um, and I find that fascinating that, um, nobody really has, <clears throat> excuse me, a, a message discipline. Yeah, so I think Jack Welsh had it, and I think he did it in a way that was just extraordinary, and now we're seeing it with Alan Mulally. I think Sheryl Sandberg, I think there's some really great people out there that are demonstrating it, and it's a matter of saying, I'm going to stick to these three things, and I'm going to stick with it for a period of time so that people eventually realize these are the three most important things to me. And we're going to keep doing it this way. So in the book, I, I particularly drew on, on Jack Welsh because I recently, you know, heard him on one of the talk shows. And I always get a kick out of him. And uh, he said, you know, this isn't just about health care and that, it's about jobs. We need to get people jobs. And so it, it's like he just goes right in for the kill and says what's important. And if people are working and feeling like they are contributing and they have a purpose in life and they're bringing home a paycheck, it makes a difference in the way we respond to everything. When he ran the company, he said, you know, grow your business, sell it or close it. Those are the three options you have. I mean, you think about that and everything he did, every operations review, Every strategy review, it was all around, are you growing your business? Have you decided to sell it because it doesn't quite fit? Are you closing it? Figure it out. So I think that kind of message discipline, I think you see it in politics a lot. I think that's what won the election the first time around between McCain and, and Obama. One was very disciplined around the messages. It was the same message over and over again. People understood it. That whole Main Street, Wall Street, that won people over um, because everything lined up around that. I think that's something we can all take a page out of that book. I think it's really important that we don't put the flavor of the month out there. And I think that's what's confusing today in business. People don't stay with it long enough. They have a lot of messages that they're throwing out from different places in the organization and there's no filter. And so people are like confused. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's very true. Um, I want to touch on bad conversations. Um, you know, why, why do people have bad conversations? Is it their fault? Is it the people that they're talking to? 
So I always believe that the uh, burden is on the person that initiates the conversation. However, when you're participating in a conversation, there's a burden there too. And reaction is one of the greatest um, causes for bad conversation. I think people have to take time to say, how do I respond to this rather than react? So when someone says something and then you immediately respond, um, that's more a reaction than it is a response because you haven't given yourself time to think. I also believe in clarifying, you know, what did you mean by that? Or I'm not sure I fully understand the question. So this is how I've interpreted it. Is, is that what you're saying? So I do think that the reason we have bad conversations is we don't put time against them. If we're about to go have a conflicted conversation with someone, how much prep do we do? How do we have the conversation about the conversation before we go in and just jump right into whatever the conflict is? Um, and then can we have it in a way where we're separating our emotion and our opinion from what we've observed? So that if you just, if you're having a conflicted conversation, you say, you know, I, this is what I've observed. I don't know if, if what I'm seeing is what's really intended, but this is what I'm seeing. Um, can you kind of, you know, give me a view from where you're sitting? All of a sudden you take it off the table of I am attacking you. So I think very, I've gotten the book, Why Good People Have Bad Conversations. I think our intentions are there, Bob. We want to have the right conversation. And I'm as guilty as the next person, trust me. I'm still trying to eat my own dog food here. It's not always easy. When someone comes up and says something and you're triggered, and the next thing you know, you're engaged in a reaction, it never goes well. So if we can all hit the pause button, and I often say this to people on email, you know when you get one of those email bombs and you just want to get right down to it, hit the send button and fire it right back off? Not a good idea. There's an opportunity to reframe that conversation in a way that gives the other person some wiggle room and, you know, gets it back on track. Yeah, well, the ability to create an opportunity for somebody to f save face is uh, probably the, one of the biggest things I learned when I was in Asia. Uh, it's being very mindful of what's going on and very conscious of what's going on and then being uh, nice enough to, you know, basically throw the person a bone by, by asking and different questions. there's a question. combination of personal stories in the book that really deal with that. You know, like um, when I brought my son into work um, and my son it, it was adopted at the two month, two days old and uh, all these women were standing around being very sweet about him. And then this woman came up who's kind of mean spirited and said, um, oh, is that your adopted son? And I said, uh, yes. And she said, well, there's nothing like having your own. Now, everyone in that group at that moment felt the sting of that comment. And I don't always have the presence of mind, but I did then because I think I was so thrilled about having this baby. And I decided I'm not going to let this woman rain on my parade. And I reframed the conversation and I said, you know, you're right. When my niece was born, I was so excited. I never thought I would have that feeling. 
until I held my son and there is nothing like having your own. And it just allowed her to kind of think about what she had said and she kind of backed out of the conversation. Everybody sort of sighed and it was kind of like, oh, okay. Um, And it gave, you know, levity to the situation. So I do think that um, if you can have the presence of mind whenever you're pushed against the wall to, you know, I apologize for this, mind to really do it differently, I think it would make a big difference. Listening, super duper critical to a great conversation. How do you help somebody that is incapable of listening? I think that's hard, Bob. I think there are, and I've noticed this and you probably do too, Pete, there are people that can only think about what they need to say next and it's difficult So often um, I get people, and recently even in this Food for Thought conference, a woman said to me, what do you do when you've got a a lower level person who's in the decision-making cycle and they're just talking and talking and they don't get it? And I said, you listen to them. You listen for cues. You listen for what's really the unmet need. Because whenever you're in a conversation at least for me, I'm always listening for what does this person need? Um, what, what can I, how can I address that need? And sometimes you just really can come right out and ask, you know, I really care about what you think. Can you, you know, share with me what's really underneath that? And what's, what's motivating you to feel the way that you do? Whatever it is. And that's, that's something that you can learn if you're willing to learn. You have to be willing to learn. Um, I, I say this to my husband very often. I, it's so easy to have what I consider to be dueling monologues where you're not listening. You know, you're just talking. Um, build off of what someone has said. Um, once somebody has said something, if you just go on to the next thought, you haven't even acknowledged the fact that that person has said something to you. Just taking the time to acknowledge what's just been said and then saying, you know, acknowledge, and then you build off of what's been said rather than coming out with a brand new thought. You know, those are sort of tricks to help you with that. But the truth of the matter is you have to want to. Yeah. (laughs) You have to want to. And I, I don't think you can be a leader today and be successful if you are not listening. Because look at your customers. They're talking to you all the time. And they expect you to listen. And most people don't realize that that it isn't about focus groups and all the stuff that's out there today. You can listen to your customers just by virtue of the way they're interacting with your company brand. It's a it's a big deal. And most people are missing that completely. Let's talk about um, addicted to relevance. I love uh, the concept that people are addicted to relevance. So the, the inspiration for that, to be honest with you, uh, I got a question once. And, you know, most companies are talking about growth. Um, 20 years ago, companies were very, very focused on Wall Street. 
still are. Um, and it was all about making the profit, making the, the EBITDA. And so people would come along and, you know, even if they were flat year over year, Bob, as long as they made the profit number, they were considered the Wall Street darlings. Then Wall Street got hip to the fact that a lot of companies were profitable because they were doing massive restructures and all this other stuff, but basically they weren't growing. So they started asking the million dollar question, you're flat year over year, what are you doing about growth? And you'd hear all these different answers. What hit me in the whole cycle of particularly now, the emphasis very much on growth, is what drives growth? And I got thinking about, do all CEOs think about growth? And what hit me was Steve Jobs, as came into mind. And I said, this is a man who's probably never, ever directly come out and said, we need to grow. He cared more about relevance. How relevant are we to our customers? How relevant is the technology? Are we solving the problem that a customer is looking for us to solve? And being really driven by relevance, that's the key to growth. If you're relevant, you're growing. If you're irrelevant, you're flat year over year. So look at all the brands out there like Kodak. Um, you talk about a Kodak moment. Um, they should have had one when customers were looking at digital. They were becoming less and less relevant. And as a result, look at what happened to that amazing brand. So what I tell, what was my moment in that whole thing, a, a, a CEO said to me, you know, why do you think Jobs is so successful? What aren't we doing? And I said, this man is addicted to relevance. And it hit me. The guy looked at me and he said, wow. And that became a chapter for the book. <laughs> it, it's very true, though, especially these days. I wanted I to, so. yeah, I wanted to ask you for people that are interested in an ongoing conversation. Uh, is there a blog or or a website that you could recommend that they visit? Yes, and it's uh, rosefast.com. Um, and it, it, you know, works off of also fastforward.com, but rosefast.com is specifically geared to the book. And I've been writing blogs um, and I'd love uh, interaction uh, with people. I just wrote a, a recent one that said the first quarter results are in. What happened? Because <laughs> <laughs> it's April and here we all are. What, what's going on? Uh, so yes, uh, and we're, I'm on Twitter and I'm on Facebook and um, this old this old dog is trying to do uh, whatever we need to do to keep the conversation going and actually it's been fun. Excellent. Now one last question before we go. Um, for our listeners, could you give us a tip, one simple tip that will help them be better at their chocolate conversations? Yeah, I think if you can recognize that the way you see the world may not be the same way someone else sees the world. And if you can get at the heart of how people are interpreting what you're envisioning, it could change everything. Rose, awesome chatting with you today. The Chocolate Conversation, lead bittersweet change, transform your business. Highly recommended, a fun book, a, you know, and, and a quite a quick read. So go check it out today. Uh, and thank you very much, Rose, for spending some time chatting with us. Thank you. 
that was an awesome book. We have some great new books and authors for you to meet in the coming shows, and I know you will enjoy them immensely. You can contact me directly at contactbob.tell or visit our website at www.businessbooktalk.com. See you next week.